It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome to the start of another week. Happy Monday. I'm Jim Salverson. That's Noel McCorn. Hello. That's Marley Anderson. Good morning. And we are primed and ready to get you up to speed with the latest news from the Premier League, as we do seven days a week on Football Social Daily. Although right now... There's not much happening in terms of the English top flight. But that doesn't mean Goodbye. there's... Yeah, see you later. <laughs> now, there's plenty of talking points to get through on today's podcast. We are going to be discussing the farcical scenes in South America yesterday as Brazil's match versus Argentina was called off just four minutes in after a row over COVID quarantine regulations. And I'm going to be testing the guy's knowledge on other matches that have been called off for unusual reasons. Also going to be talking to Jim Keoghan, the author of a book, Is It Just Me or Is Modern Football? and asking if he might have a point. But let's focus first on England. A cruising performance against Andorra in the World Cup qualifier yesterday. All the reaction to that match is actually on yesterday's podcast with Pete, Ant and Fergal. So if you want a bit more insight into that 4-0 win, go and give Sunday night's Football Social Daily a listen. But I did want to pick up on a couple of things in the wake of that match. A couple of talking points. And the first of those is team selection. So it was Andorra. And you can understand why Gareth Southgate might rest a few of those key players, particularly when you've got three World Cup qualifiers in a short period of time. But what is the point in making 11 changes to a national team? Surely, if you want to try new players out, if you want to see how those fringe players perform, you have to mix them with at least half of the regular team, don't you know? Yeah, but I think it's fair to suggest that actually, even though Southgate made 11 changes against Andorra from the Hungary game, a lot of the players in that team against Andorra would be considered as regular England players. Tyrone Mings was at the Euros. Kieran Trippier was in the starting eleven. Jordan Henderson as well. So there actually were some established England internationals in the side. Trent Alexander-Arnold didn't go to the Euros due to injury, but I think he certainly would have been in the frame had it not been for that knock that he picked up, which caused him to withdraw. So, I mean, there's four players there that I've reeled off off the top of my head that I think you could consider established England internationals. You've got a point definitely 
But I think the point would be more valid another year down the line from now because the World Cup is the next tournament, which Mm. is really all England fans care about. We're going to qualify for the World Cup. We always do. I mean, the only time we we haven't qualified for a tournament in my lifetime was when I was born, which was the 94 World Cup. And the 2000... Thanks thanks to Graham Taylor. Yeah, the 2008 uh, Euros, thanks to Steve McLaren. McLaren. (laughs) So there we go, you know. So, so really, Basically, don't put a bloody idiot in charge of your, uh, your national pre- team. Precisely. I mean, uh, and actually, the good thing Gareth Southgate has done is turned this qualification win ratio into something significant in tournaments. He's done it in the World Cup, getting us to the semi-final. In the Euros, we got to the final. Obviously, we didn't win the whole thing, but certainly it's an improvement on someone like Roy Hodgson, who I don't think lost a qualification game in charge in the five or six years he was in charge mm. of England. I don't, I don't think he, he lost a single qualification game. But that's kind of what makes these qualifiers slightly. I mean, I don't really understand why England are qualifying for a World Cup against Andorra. What's the point in having Andorra in a qualification group with Because the they might just do something special but and they qualify. Won't. They won't qualify. Yeah, but that's very harsh. <laughs> You know, they might produce this unbelievable they, they crop of players. They get six points every time for beating San Marino. So <laughs> why not? What's wrong with it? They're 151st ranked in the world by FIFA, which is below New Caledonia, which if anyone what listening in uh, in Oceania uh, knows where that is, um, I don't mean the nightclub, I mean the, <laughs> the, the continent uh, of Australasia or whatever they call it these days. It's, yeah, it's a Pacific island, New Caledonia. And I can't imagine the population is too great. Mm. And they're a better ranked football side population than Andorra. Population 23 and every single one of them is in the, in the in squad. The squad. Yeah. <laughs> and one of them is the manager. But, but you know, that's the way it goes, I think. And because the World Cup in 2022 is in December of, uh, of next year, I think we're 18 months away-ish. And um, I think that there's plenty of time for Gareth Southgate in these qualifiers to try out new things. And actually, mm. I think... If England didn't beat Hungary, who were second in Group I and their biggest threat to qualification as things stood before the first game of this international break, I think if England had drawn or lost that game, we would have seen a different lineup against Andorra. And I think the fact they got the job done against Hungary gave Southgate the licence to make a few changes. With Patrick Bamford in the team getting his first international cap, Marley, I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before slightly. Did you feel slightly sorry for him? Because, I, I mean, what can you do against Andorra that is going to impress an international manager enough to give you further chances down the line but then you start that game and you're lining up against and they're not poor players Jesse Lingard and Saka but it's not the kind of service he'd be used to getting if it was a full England team I understand your point because you've kind of you know you it's not the first team like you're not gonna if you get put on in a World Cup game or a Euros game you're probably gonna have not those players in in the lineup you're not gonna have Lingard there you're probably gonna have Henderson or you you might have Declan Rice or Calvin Phillips so I suppose that's that's a point, but I don't think it should matter against Andorra. You should you should be filling your boots. Really, it doesn't really matter who's who's there because um, you should be scoring. Mm. Um, that's the bare minimum of what you've got to do. I thought Bamford was was quite poor, but also because I mean, I've seen people saying like the the midfield was kind of trying to impress because it was a second choice midfield, and that that. So that's what happens when you when you make eleven changes and everyone knows the second choice. That's why you're playing Andorra and not Hungary. Mm. You know that's like Bellingham's trying to impress, and I know he's, he's a quality player, but he's trying to prove that he's a, he's levels above Andorra and he needs to start proper games. So the service isn't quite coming as much. You seen Lingard scoring two goals; he'll go away buzzing. But you know, could could he have done more to set up Bamford a bit more? Because I've seen a few people pointing out that the runs Bamford made and they were good runs he just wasn't getting the ball whereas at Leeds every week he gets the ball because he's the scorer so 
I do feel a little bit sorry for him. Um, I still thought he had enough chances to do better. Um, but realistically, are you ever going to get a game for England when Harry Kane's fit? No. no. You probably know. You mentioned two players there, Patrick Bamford and Jesse Lingard, who I think it would be quite easy to make a case, or a lot of people will make a case, that Mason Greenwood should have been in that squad and in that team mm-hmm. ahead of both of them, given the start of the season he's had. And you look at the likes of... I mean, looking back, people like Michael Owen and people like Wayne Rooney, who by the time they were getting to 18, had 20 or so caps to their name. Whereas yeah. you've got Mason Greenwood, who is probably one of the most talented youngsters in the Premier League. He's got one England cap. Do you think Southgate should be looking at him more and calling him in place of these players that... I mean, Patrick Bamford's not at the best start to the season. Jesse Lingard's played 30 seconds of football probably this season. Mm. He's played four minutes, four minutes. since the warm-up games for the Euros. Jesse Lingard. So what, why is he getting in ahead of Mason Greenwood? Different position, I suppose. Look, Greenwood's been playing centre-forward, hasn't he, for Man U? So you look at Lingard's been playing that... Uh, well, not been playing, really, but when he is playing, he's playing a, the more attacking midfield-type role. Um, I feel like Southgate put him in the team just to remind... Uh, in the squad, so to remind Man United how good he is because he's not going to get a chance at Man United, especially with Ronaldo coming as well, you know. All them players you've got there, Sancho, Ronaldo, Greenwood, Cavani, Martial, even. Um, all these players are just going to push him out onto the bench. He might get 15 minutes in a Champions League game. So I feel like Southgate was like, I know your quality, like he did with Hudson-Odoi. Remember when he put Hudson-Odoi in before he made his Chelsea debut because mm. he knew he was quality. <laughs> and he was just like, this kid's good, play him. And I think he's doing that with Lingard a little bit because he knows he's not going to get a chance at club football. So why not give him a... You know, an easy ninety-minute run out against Andorra and say, you know, show someone what you can do. So, I feel like it might be a case of that, to be honest. I also think it's a skill in management to keep all of your players sweet, and I think that there will be a time in which Harry Kane picks up an injury because he always does. Mm. And who do you call upon at that point in time? I mean, do you call upon Bamford, who hasn't had an England cap? Let's just say he didn't get a call up and didn't get a start. You know, and he's in flying form in the Premier League, and you pick and you call him up. Then can can you rely on him? to deliver the goods, actually now that he's had a taste and, you know, he's got that experience of playing even against a small team like Andorra and, and you know, picking up three points in qualification and being in and around the group and the environment, it will make him feel more comfortable should he ever be called upon. It's mm. the same with Dominic Calvert-Lewin. We've seen it with Callum Wilson. We've seen it with Danny Ings. We've seen it with Ollie Watkins. I think Southgate knows exactly what he's doing. I think he's given all of these lads a taste of England football so that actually, if ever they do get called upon, say they're in amazing form, they don't feel like it's a step into the unknown. They don't feel like it's a, a new challenge for them. They feel like they're already semi-integrated into the group and they're able to just come in and perform as they would normally do because they know the lads around them. And I think that that's something Southgate deserves immense credit for, is the bond and the connection and the camaraderie that these lads uh, have kind of created and the chemistry that they've got with each other. I mean, obviously that's helped by the fact you got to the Euros final and all the rest of it. But certainly I think that's a a case to be had. You know, he's given all of these different strikers here and there different games. I mean, look at someone like Calvin Phillips. Only made his debut last year Mm. and he's now like the England player of the year. So, I mean, it just goes to show that Southgate, if, if you perform well enough, he will trust you and give you an opportunity. But I think he's certainly just putting different irons in the fire and just checking out who might be a good option going forward. And I think Greenwood is still yet to get that treatment and I think there was an understanding between England and Manchester United that Greenwood would be in the squad under normal circumstances but I think they just want to see how he does for the next 
maybe a couple of months because there's another international break around the corner, probably a month or so away from now. And I wouldn't be shocked if he was included in that. Returning to Jesse Lingard, again, as you say, Southgate's putting him into the squad to remind Manchester United how good he is. What is the future for Jesse Lingard now? He didn't get his move in the summer window. He didn't, reports suggest he didn't want to go back to West Ham. Manchester United weren't keen to let him go back to the West Ham at the money that West Ham were offering for him. I mean, two goals against Andorra isn't going to cause Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to go, well, I'm going to drop Cristiano Ronaldo and bring you into that squad. And he's not good. So, I mean, as Marley says, it's very difficult to see him getting game time at Manchester United. Mm. So what, ha- what happens to him over the next six months or 12 months? Surely, if he's not getting game time for his club, he's not going to get p- picked for his country, even though he's made this squad. Well, unless he gets a new deal, United will have to sell him in January to get any money for him or they let him go for free in the mm. summer. But that being said, in terms of the way United play at the moment, 4-2-3-1, in the 10 position, in behind the striker, who could be any of Cavani, Martial or Ronaldo, or even Greenwood who can play there, in the 10 position, it is just Bruno Fernandes. Really. I mean, he'll he'll play every game that he's fit. Bruno Fernandes is a, a, basically a maniac, for want of a better term. He wants to play every minute of every mm. game, whether it's, you know, uh, League Cup first round or, or Europa League final. He'll, he'll play every minute of every game because he's that sort of player. But actually, who's second, really? to Bruno Fernandes in the 10 position. Um, Who's the best well, fit? Well, still there, isn't he? <laughs> I still think I put Lingard above Mata yeah, as a number yeah. 10 at the moment. There, yeah. So I actually think in terms of the depth that United have got in the 10 position, it's only really Fernandes and then Lingard. So actually, uh, in terms of what Lingard's future is, like I say, he's played four minutes for Manchester United uh, this season, which is which is nothing, isn't it? It's... it's it's no game time at all for a player who wants to be included in the England squad and make waves Manchester United. But Bruno Fernandes is a better player than Jesse Lingard and he's got his work cut out to dislodge Bruno. He won't dislodge Bruno Fernandes. Bruno could be in poor form and you know the chances of Jesse Lingard kind of getting in that team and making it his own are very slim. But in terms of the backup options that United have got in the 10 position behind Fernandes, I think it's just Lingard really. Like you say, matters there. But Lingard is, is the only real option you could choose to put in the 10 position considering the form he showed for West Ham last season and maybe that's his position in the squad right now for Mm. Manchester United he might be an excellent first team starter for West Ham but for Manchester United with the quality they've got at the top end of the pitch now I can't see anywhere else Lingard slots into the team. But to be fair to him as a Manchester United fan which he is why wouldn't he want to stay at his boyhood club when one of the Mm. heroes of that club has just returned he gets to train every day with Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. And, he, and he celebrated in sort of like tribute a, to Ronaldo, didn't he? Like a div. <laughs> uh, no, I just think as well, like I think he, he just he's got he's going to enjoy this six months and see where where he is. Well, three and a half months and and see where he is in January, and then maybe go like who who would turn down three or four months playing with Ronaldo, or mm. even playing in that Man United team who were gonna you know they just signed Sancho over the summer. They're going to get better, even if you're a squad player in that that. Uh, that club that is still a good sort of place to be so give it six months if and then they they almost have to sell you if they want money yeah. so well he can sign a pre-contract can't with, well, with a European team you could potentially sign a pre-contract in January yeah or I mean I wouldn't put it past a Premier League team to be in for him definitely mm. um, for 10-15 million whatever it is so they, they, they might get it there and then he's got what 10, 11 months from January to get into that World Cup squad, which he'll back himself to do because he's done it with West Ham. He got to 
the 30 man Euro team and um, got cut out. But after another 11 months in someone's first team from January, you'd you'd fancy him maybe. Mm. And also just on the the Jesse Lingard thing about him being the best 10 backup for Fernandez. I know people will be screaming at their phones saying, "What about Donny Van der Beek?" I think Lingard. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. I think Lingard's better than Van der Beek right now. Well, he got a few minutes under his belt. Certainly, more minutes on the pitch than any of the players in Brazil versus Argentina's <laughs> game in South America got this weekend. After that game was called off, after just four minutes, after it was found that some of the Argentina players had breached COVID regulations. We'll talk about that next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, a week of internationals, World Cup qualifiers, and one of the biggest talking points from those World Cup qualifiers, even though it's not strictly Premier League, it's an amazing story. Brazil versus Argentina, a game that was called off just four minutes in because four players had failed to obey quarantine rules, according to Brazilian officials. They have been arrested. They are set for deportation. The (laughs) suggestion is it's the four Argentinian players that play in the Premier League, although that hasn't been confirmed by anyone. That's that's just what appears to be the the situation there. I mean, absolutely farcical scenes. And I guess it kind of strengthens for me the case that maybe these games, and I talked about this before, these, this international break probably shouldn't be happening at the moment anyway. Do you think it underlines that there is a, I don't know, I guess a certain risk to doing this when you've got players who have to travel halfway around the world 14 days quarantine they should have had these Argent- the players coming from the UK to Brazil to play mm. in this game. It's, it's just never going to happen. It's a ridiculous situation. Yeah, I mean, we said this at the on the podcast last week. It's just a minefield. I mean, there are so many different factors at play here. The fact that the UK has basically got this red list, hasn't it, of mm. countries that you can't travel to. And footballers are not exempt from that. Um, unless they get a, a special dispensation to travel. And that was the impression that I think the Argentine national team got when they travelled to Brazil. Brazil, similarly to the UK, also has a red list. And the UK is on Brazil's red list and vice versa. So Which actually it hadn't occurred to me until this moment. You, you think of it as it going one way and players coming back to the UK and having to quarantine and not being available for club sides. But it hadn't occurred to me that the players flying out would have yeah. to quarantine so, as well. So actually a, a chunk of the Argentinian football players uh, are obviously playing in countries which aren't on Brazil's red list. The UK is on Brazil's version of the red list, as we call it. And that is why... These Premier League players who were involved, I think three of them started and one of them was on the bench. I know one was Martinez from Villa, one was Lo Celso from Tottenham, and I can't remember the other two. Wendia from Villa and Romero yeah. from Spurs as well. So just Wendia Villa and Spurs and, players, uh, <laughs> randomly. Just Villa and Spurs players. But yeah, I mean, that was that was the complaint. And I think the Argenti- Argentina national team were waiting for a government waiver or an exemption, and it just never came. Mm. And I don't know whether that's... Um, of a political thing because socio-politically Argentina versus Brazil is one of those football matches which is like you know it's got deeper implications than just a football match it's bragging rights it's you know who's the top dog in South America that sort of thing and uh, of course the Copper America recently took place in Brazil where Argentina beat Brazil in their own backyard in the final 
So I don't know if there's a bit of a hangover from that. But there were question marks during the Copper America over whether they should have just been using that time whilst the national teams were over there to play these World Cup qualifiers and mm. extra three games after the Copper America had finished or before the tournament or whatever, just to, you know, catch up. And now, you know, one of the best spectacles in international football, Argentina versus Brazil, cancelled after four minutes because health authorities run onto the pitch. And I don't think this is the last time we'll see something like this. Um, like, like I said the other day, I think when it gets to the next international break, everyone will forget about it for the next three weeks. And then we'll get to the next international break and it will happen again and it will happen again and again and again. And there is just no way of policing it. And it does make you wonder whether World Cup friendlies, uh, World Cup qualifiers, sorry, should be taking place in the way that they're taking place, like you say. But, you know, it's just because the world is in such a position at the moment where each country are are at a different level of Mm. their recovery or their combating of the virus. And I think that's the problem. You just can't legislate it for. seems strange that they couldn't find a solution in a similar way to the european competitions panned out at the end of last season the domestic european competitions in terms of you find a country you find a venue absolutely that's neutral. so why this happens a lot when the international friendlies are on brazil play friendlies in europe mm. yeah well, that's a friendly though this is a qualifier so i know not gonna look for things like that They're i know not, it's not even going to cross their mind they're just going to think like, Brazil play games all the time where they have to use domestic players only, don't they? Yeah. So why can't Argentina do that? Because it's not as big a country. So you're kind yeah. of thinking... Yeah, I mean, that, that's the spanner, they, isn't they it? They don't want to put their domestic players in against Brazil because of the thing you said about, you know, the rivalry. You don't want to get absolutely spanked by them. Mm. But, I don't know. I mean, that's the whole the, thing's a mess, really. Yeah, yeah, that's the spanner, isn't it, Marley, that it's a World Cup qualifier, so you have to play it in the country... Um, which is the home team, whereas in a friendly you could bring it to Europe because all of the players pretty much play in European football. Um, and, and actually, I, I, I think there's a, a fair few that do play, you know, for like Boca Juniors and teams like that. But um, but really, I think the majority of the best Brazilian and Argentine players do play football in, in UEFA. Completely. So, I mean, could there not have been special dispensation for that? Um, as as Marley says, I guess it is. You kind of it's an important game because it's a qualifier. You're giving up home advantage, but I suppose it's the balance between: do you want the game to go ahead? Do you want your players to be available, or do you want the home advantage? And I guess, I think in these exceptional times, football has to be the thing that comes first. It has to be the idea that the game goes ahead and everyone's safe. I mean, it was four minutes in that this took place, Marley. They decided Mm. to walk on the pitch and cancel the game. (laughs) Do you think there was a little bit of? I mean. Do you think there was an element of that being showmanship almost? Oh, that yeah. making a point <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, that the course. rules are being breached? I refuse to believe that they couldn't have arrested them on the way into the stadium when they touched down in the country, when they went through customs, <laughs> when they got to the team hotel, when they got to the lobby, when they went for dinner. You know, it's not as if they've all holed themselves up and parricaded themselves in for oh. 48. But I think they did in the dressing room, Locked the changing they? room door, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah but they knew something was going on. You know, how many places have they been before they got to that point? You know, they've been, they've been walking to the hotel. Out, walking out the tunnel onto the, the pitch. Exactly, yeah. They could have stopped them at any point, but, you know, Billy Big Bollock's in charge and just gone, <laughs> nah, I'm going to wait until four or five minutes in and I'm going to walk on with a strut, like a Ric Flair-style strut. Um, and just be like, right, stop the match, stop the match, and then, you know, get kicked off on by, you know, members of both teams that are like, what mm. the hell are you doing here? So, And the weird thing is... And then is, they realise that they were police and like, yeah, 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 yeah all right, yeah, we're, we're federal police, mate, okay. And yeah, the weird thing we is, want. right, they say they're going to deport them. Deport. They can't deport them to the UK because they're not UK nationals. 
They're just employees here. So the only place they'd be able to back deport to them would be back to Argentina, which is where they would have gone after the game anyway. So they'll have got... to quarantine in Argentina and then they'll have to quarantine from Argentina to the UK. So potentially that's three weeks yeah. that these players could be missing for their domestic clubs. Yeah, but the maybe. fact they were arrested because they shouldn't be in the country because they failed to follow quarantine rules and they were going to be deported. They would have left straight after the match. They would have gotten a plane back to Argentina for their next qualifier, mm. which is at home in Argentina. So really... All they've done is just send them packing a few hours earlier than they would have gone anyway. I tell you what, this is all an elaborate rouge uh, constructed and orchestrated by Jed Steer, the Aston Villa backup <laughs> goalkeeper, who just wants a game in Villa colours. So he's thinking, he's, he's been on blower to all the, uh, the, the federal authorities in Brazil saying there's an illegal guy coming into your country. He hasn't quarantined because he's just texted me. He's out, for, he's out on the... He's <laughs> called Emmy Martinez. <laughs> Conspiracy theories are rife. Right, well, that was won't be the first game that's called off or postponed. It won't be the last either. I'm going to play a little quiz. Cue the quiz music. Because I've got some games here that I'm going to tell you about that have been either postponed or cancelled or called off. And I want you to tell me why the games didn't take place. First one. 2016, easy one to start, Manchester United versus Bournemouth. Why did that game not take place? I want to say that there was a bomb scare inside Old Trafford. Oh, yeah. And it was, yeah, because it was, was it a decoy, wasn't it? In a it? toilet. And somebody forgot to take it out Correct. Of the <laughs> Correct. There was a yes. dummy bomb left in the stadium after a training oh exercise. And you that imagine being the guy who found the dummy bomb. You would have no idea. Dummy bombs look like bombs. <laughs> That's the idea of a dummy bomb. So if I found one, I'd absolutely poo my pants. It was the first time, I think, in 20 years that a Premier League game got called off for security reasons. Oh. Right, they get slightly more difficult from here on in. 1999, you might be good with this one, Niall. Torquay versus Portsmouth. Why did that not take place in 1999? Oh, my gosh. Well, I wasn't very oh, old you, then. You were about five in Yeah, there, I wasn't very old then. We weren't very good either, hence we were playing Torquay. No offence to Torquay. Um, we're still not very good. I want to say it's something to do with, with floodlights or something like that. Um, You're way off. Am I? Go my, on. My guess is there was a rogue dog on the pitch. It, the year is the clue. It's 1999. There's something big happening. Millennium oh, bug, really. <laughs> Not the millennium bug. <laughs> it was Y2K. The, it, was, it was the solar the eclipse. The so eclipse? The solar what? eclipse was taking place that day on the south coast, oh. and the police insisted that the game was cancelled. I should know. I, I watched it in a place called Avebury when I was five. I remember that very clearly. Yeah, they, the police couldn't handle the crowds of the eclipse and the game, so they wow. insisted it was moved at the last minute. It's not. They had a few thousand years warning. They knew, <laughs> they knew it was going to take place, but still it got called <laughs> off at the last minute. At 1997, Middlesbrough versus Blackburn. Why did that not take place? In the Premier League. The river flooded. The River Tees flooded. No, not oh, yeah. a flood. Middle, so it's Middlesbrough at home, Riverside. Oh, don't know. Janino couldn't get his passport sorted out at times. So couldn't play. Flu. Brian Robson claimed he didn't have 16 fit players, so refused to play the game, was fined £50,000 and docked three points, and Middlesbrough got relegated by one point Robo. that season. Oh. That's rough. 2002, final one. Sheffield United versus West Brom. Why, this game did start... But then it stopped. Why did it? <laughs> was why it did that, that bad? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one wanted to watch it soon. Right, lads, let's call it a day. Don't know. Crowd trouble. Nope. Give us a clue, Jim. Go on. Player trouble. 
Oh, oh there was fight. too many people sent off. The game couldn't carry there on. There weren't enough players <laughs> on the pitch by the end of it. <laughs> Simon Tracy, the Sheffield United keeper at the time, was sent off early doors for a handball nine minutes in. Then George Santos got sent off. Then Patrick Sofo got sent off. And then all the subs were used. Michael Brown got injured. Robert Ullathorne got injured, which left Sheffield United with six players. <laughs> they were 3-0 yeah. down at the time. Game got called off. You forfeit the game 3-0 anyway, don't yeah, you? If you... I don't know. Well, if, it's, if you get players, set, if you get that many players sent off, you'd forfeit the game. But you wouldn't forfeit the game if you got players injured and couldn't replace them, would you? Not sure. There I just go. remember That's when I was playing FIFA when I was a little boy. We used to when you get were getting beat, you just used to hack everyone. <laughs> That's a good reference players, point. Used to get players sent off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you forfeit the game. I'm not sure computer games are the ideal reference points for for things like that. Well, everyone on Twitter seems to do that. So that is, yeah. this is very true. That's you know, the only reason everyone knows that you win three 0 because it never happens in real life. If you, uh, it's if you very forfeit. true. Yeah. If you know the actual rules at the Sports Social on Twitter, you can get us there. Right, we're going to be talking next to a fella called Chim Kyogen, who is not only an Everton fan but the author of a new book called Is It Just Me or Is Modern Football Sh**? Before we chat to Jim what is the thing you guys hate most? If you're going to pick one thing about modern football and confine it to the room 101 what would it be? Having to sit down at games when you're especially away games Mm. when your natural instinct is to stand up and be amongst the crowd I don't like that and I think we're slowly getting rid of that and we're going to come back to safe standing soon. I understand in the Premier League, but you don't really get that down in the lower leagues. So when I get to watch Portsmouth a lot of the time, we do get to stand up. And I think if Pompey ever did get back to the Championship or the Premier League, mm. I think it would be difficult for us to adapt to just sitting down all the time. I, I don't like that. And phones. Um, every game is on YouTube within an hour of full-time whistle with highlights. There's always clips on Twitter the coverage of football now is exponential. I understand people taking um, videos of, you know, if Ronaldo's got a penalty at Old Trafford against Newcastle mm. next week, for example, I understand. Which is thir- pretty good bet because we'll give away three <laughs> in our first three games. So. Which, you know, if there's 30,000 people whipping out their phones trying to take a video of Ronaldo scoring his first goal back at United, I would totally understand that. But flipping the camera around and filming yourself oh. in the stands, oh, yeah, not for me, enough, I'm yeah. afraid. So that's ban- being banished to Room 101 for I me. I'll tell you what, if, if Ronaldo scores a penalty, the amount of uh, things going on this week and the amount of furor around Ronaldo it won't be the only thing being whipped out at Old Trafford. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's buzzing for it. I think, I mean, if the phones at football grounds thing is the same as phones at gigs for me. It's like you've got a band playing your favourite song. Mm. Don't film it on mm. your phone in a I mean, terrible all... quality thing you're never going to watch again because it will sound I mean, by all means, take a few photos, right? But I've seen YouTube videos of, like, entire gigs. Yeah. I'm like, what, what, did you not watch the gig? Yeah, terrible. Anyway, nomination from you, Marley, before we crack on. Uh, i got a bit of an inception moment here, right? So my, my thing about watching modern football is watching a football game with my girlfriend's dad who just <laughs> moans about the same thing over and over again, uh, which is modern football and, <laughs> and how the, um, the players surround the ref. <laughs> and demand cards and stuff. He says the same thing every time. He's like, "Oh, if that was me, I'd be there waiting with me yellow card, going right. Come on, then, come, come closer to me. Say something bad. Yellow card." And I'm just like, "Tony, shut up, <laughs> honestly, man." Um, so, but he has got a point. He has got a point. It is, it is annoying. Um, other than that, one thing I'd probably, probably, I don't know, probably go for is the 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 feigning injury kind of thing. Um, and the the bit of sort of shit a little bit with uh, 
with players pretending to be injured and dropping to the floor with the slightest of contact. I kind of like it this this season how they they're getting a bit more lenient with things. And if you get shoulder barged, you don't technically you don't automatically win mm. a free kick if you fall over. Um, I still think there's a long way to go to be fair because there's a lot of uh, things that aren't fouls that we're used to seeing as fouls and when we talk about them we say well in the modern game that's a foul mm. um, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing um, but that probably the one thing I like the combative nature of, of football and it's it's kind of disappearing so that's probably one of the modern things that, that I'd like to see come back well, we'll find out whether either of your nominations a good make... old reducer <laughs> that's what I need <laughs> we'll find out if either of those nominations make the book we'll be speaking to Jim Kyogen next on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're going to talk about modern football now. We're going to get all literary because of speaking to Jim Keoghan, who is the author of a new book, Is It Just Me or Is Modern Football? How are you doing, Jim? I'm good, thanks. You're right. Yeah, I'm not too bad, Tara, as well. I'm going to start by asking you quite a blunt question. Is modern football really sh- Not completely. I mean, I'm, I'm not <laughs> really. I mean, I'm not, not some kind of like, you know, elderly curmudgeon who can't see that there's lots of great things about modern football. I mean, it's obviously technically better than it used to be. It's mm. a lot more inclusive than it, than it once uh, was. Uh, it's also, you know, immensely popular. But I think there's... Um, Quite a lot of fans, probably those of a certain age, probably those who, you know, maybe in their 40s and 50s, maybe even 30s, who feel like despite the many improvements and benefits of modern football, it's also come at a bit of a cost. And it's some of those costs that I I wanted to explore in this book. I mean, it is slightly tongue-in-cheek. It's obviously written with humour. You highlight things such as... Jamie Redknapp's role as a televisual yogurt, which I love as a description. Uh, Steve Claridge's sexual magnetism, all that kind of thing. But you mention it there. Is it just a case of when we moan about modern football not being as good as it used to be? And I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, of that kind of grumpy old man syndrome. Is it just a bit of a, it was better in my day-ism, rather than actually football being worse than it was, less enjoyable than it was? I think there's an element of that. I think you always look back slightly through um, rose-tinted specs. But I think there's kind of, you know, well, I hope there are some um, valid points in the book as well. You know, things that I address like ticket prices, like the massive um, inequality that currently exists in the game, the fact that it's become, you know, it's not, not necessarily boring, but you can, you can sort of predict with some accuracy how, mm. how a kind of a top-flight season will go. And it certainly wasn't, you know, certainly in the past, if you look at champions and kind of people who finished, uh, clubs who finished in the top four or five in like the 60s, 70s and 80s, there was a lot more variety than is currently the case. Also the sense that, you know, any club could really make it. You could, you could, go, you could do a Watford or a Wimbledon and go from the very bottom to the very top and, you know, finish in the top three. Whereas, you know, in, unless you're a club who gets a massive financial input that's not going to happen anymore seems like the you know, the idea of the magic of the cup that's sort of going really the, mm-hmm. i mean the cups are won by a, a narrow number of clubs than was once the case so there's there's certainly yeah i think you're right there's definitely a, a, a you know we are just of a certain age and we just moan because football 
felt better in the past and you know there was certainly wasn't there was certainly lots of problems with football in the 80s and 70s and even into the 90s but there's definitely you know it's, it's not a game without its flaws that there's plenty wrong with modern football and, you know some of it is tongue-in-cheek but some of it is it is kind of there are definite issues that that you know i think a lot of fans feel that need to be addressed do you think there's a danger with football at the moment where it is at and it feels like it's at a bit of a crossroads we've seen recently the european super league and the proposals there falling by the wayside because of fan power but it's very much the traditional fan that kind of posed an objection to that and it's the traditional fan that's maybe being marginalized by football slightly in favor of that global fan base do you think there's a danger that that match going fan the one that is buying your fanzine that is turning up at the ground is going to get completely pushed out of the game in favor of the people in the four far-flung corners of the world yeah well, that's a really good point i think um i think those kind of traditional fans we feel that we're we're massively important because we're the ones who've been going to football for years. We're the ones who've, who've kept our clubs going, and you know, in the past, we were the ones that that really mattered. But I think you're right. I mean, football is changing beyond recognition, and actually, the importance of those sort of fans. I think that was proved in the lockdown season when fans weren't in the ground. Actually, football mm-hmm. still continued, and going forward, as the elite clubs recognise, it's maybe supporters in emerging markets whose relationship with football is only kind of based around television and watching it uh, on telly and who never go to the game and yet will fork out for you know their version of Sky TV in their country. They're the ones who are maybe being chased and, and, and they number in their you know millions um, and perhaps we're not as important as we used to be or how we think we are and actually um, the future of the game lies in um, less what they call was it legacy fans, which is what we are. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, we don't matter. I mean, they don't not just see- fans, legacy fans. Yeah, exactly, and, and they don't seem to want us. To be honest, they want. I think they call them future fans, which is yeah, uh, fans in emerging markets, and also you know young kids in this country whose relationship with football is different to what it once was when I grew up there, maybe not so wedded to one club. They're interested in superstar footballers. They're interested in elite clubs uh, and maybe kind of the um, the appeal of standing on a mm. terrace watching low quality football between two low quality teams slogging it out for a nil nil maybe for kind of you know 12 year old kids that's not exciting because I mean mm. obviously why would it be necessarily so it's um yeah I think you're right football is changing and maybe we're getting left behind and um that kind of spares that anger that a lot of um mm. kind of fans of a certain age feel to be a bit more granular, you cover a load of different topics on the within the book, kind of from the big weighty issues to the minor irritations like goal music and the tediousness of deadline day, half and half scarfs, which is something that will make most football fans shudder at even the mention of. Is there any particular aspects of this tirade against the modern game that has got a load of traction that you've got people just agreeing with you 100%? It, well, half and half scarves is definitely one. I think you know, for a lot, a lot of fans, it's you just don't understand it at all because the, the very nature of football is kind of you know one team against another, yeah. and you've got your team and you go and watch your team, and in those ninety minutes, you hate the opposition. You don't want anything to do with them. The idea of going to a game and coming away with a, a scarf in which the opposition team forms half of it, who 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 is that for? I guess for a lot of fans, it's, it's for tourists. Mm. It's, it sort of represents the kind of incursion 
of a very different kind of football supporter. Therefore, I guess spectacle alone and for a nice day out in which the half and half scarf is just a souvenir. But for kind of, um, I guess, for legacy fans, it's 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 a it's a weird thing to want to buy and to sort of appear at uh, Premier League grounds with more frequency. So that one certainly gets a lot more traction and maybe uh, the kind of things I've written about pundits. I think there's a lot of people out there who, who have an issue with a lot of the punditry that is uh, forced upon us by, by the broadcasters, particularly certain pundits who seem to be stealing a living, the likes of like Redknapp and Michael Owen. It's, it's hard to understand how they're getting paid season mm-hmm. in season now for what what they just offer it seems like white noise half the time there's just re- re- repeating back to you what you already know and uh it's you know how how are they still on our screens when you see certain pundits like emma hayes or mm-hmm. uh Roy Keane, who you know whether it's insight or entertainment offers so much more than the likes of Redknapp or Owen. it's interesting that you've picked two former liverpool players just a coincidence, that is. Just, just a coincidence. I mean, you are an Everton fan, Jim. You've written a few books about yeah. the Toffees too through the years. What are you making of... I mean, it's early days at the moment, but what are you making of the new Rafa Benitez-fronted regime at Everton at the moment? It, it's interesting because I think um, I, like a lot, a lot of Evertonians, felt fairly hostile towards the appointments. We didn't... We, we thought that, you know... Mm. There are plenty of managerial possibilities out there. Why would you choose um, Benitez? And I think um, I was fearful that he'd, he'd get quite a poor reception. But I was there at the um, the first game of the season. Actually, the Evertonians, the, the kind of raw when he when he came out, seemed very genuine. Um, and I think seeing what's happened with the the recent um, transfer business, clearly Everton are not in the kind of the, the same financial shape that we that we were under, you know, Cumin or Silver. Um, and I think Martinez has been uh, not not Martinez, sorry, Benitez has been brought in because of that. I think he has experience of working with, of doing good things with tight budgets and mm. and you know finding players um, at the bottom of the market who can who can do something to the club and and also a track record of maybe coming in at clubs who maybe aren't doing that well. And you know he did it at, at Valencia, at Liverpool. He did it at Napoli, and maybe bring them on slightly. So I think seeing what's happened since, it, it sort of makes sense. I mean, it's hard to get past the Liverpool thing, and I worry what happens when we inevitably go through a period of bad form, which will happen because we're Everton. It's, we're not an elite club, and we will, we will have we will lose games. And also when the when the um, the first derby comes along, that's going to be a very strange affair. So it's um, you know, so far it's gone well, but you, you're talking what four games? Mm. It's it's a, it's a long season, and it's when things go badly. I wonder how much goodwill he's got in the bank compared to you know, had we got someone like Nuno or someone like Don Moyes. Mm. It's, uh, it'd be, it's I think it's going to make for a very interesting season. But it's um, you know, you, you, so far so good, but it's Everton. How often does that last? You say you're not an elite club. I think the ambition has always been there for Everton to become an elite club. And long time, you've been referred to as sleeping giants as there being potential there. And there has been investment in recent years. Do you think it's ever going to come with the new stadium and the new regime and the new management and potentially more financial investment down the line? Or do you think it's kind of, it's a fortune's always hiding scenario? 
I think we're, we're a naturally uh, pessimistic fan base, so it's 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 always hard to think that it's going to happen because there's been so many you know false dawns over the years, and and every other club we seem to excel at making bad decisions. Um, <laughs> but you'd hope. I mean, I think certainly you know the the stadium move has been muted for twenty years and never happened. Mm. I think Goodison, as much as we all love it, it's unquestionably um, held the club back. We haven't been able to make the kind of money that our peer, our once peers. Um, have made so if it happens, and I don't I think most Evertonians won't believe it until it's actually built. If, if it happens, it's certainly a step in the right direction. I think it enables us maybe to hang on to the coattails of the elite. Um, but when you look at teams like City, United, and Chelsea, and you think about the amounts that they spend, and you look at Everton, even with uh, the ground, the new ground, and even with a wealthy owner, it's still really hard to keep up realistically we'll probably just end up where we were previously, which was maybe that club who can finish sixth and maybe have a cup run. I think our days of being part of the elite, which I think what we were in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, they've probably gone. It's quite frustrating as a fan, but it's I think you have to be realistic. I think it's um, where, you know, had Mashiri not come and, and we didn't move, I think we would have just slowly slipped down and become maybe a mid-table club. Maybe even you know going back to what you were in the nineties when we were kind of a, a, a relegation club. It's natural pessimism, I think, mixed with realism that it's, that's that's kind of where our future lies. Jim, don't let your pessimism about Everton and your hatred for modern football get you down. Hopefully, keep the faith, my friend. Um, <laughs> no worries. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Is it just Thank me or is modern football? Sh- is out now it's an encyclopedia of everything that is wrong in the modern game it's uh, available now usual places for that head on amazon find out more yeah that's right yeah top man cheers jim pleasure to speak to you no worries thanks very much that is it for today's podcast thank you very much for your listening uh, don't forget you can find the latest news on your team on the website sport-social.co.uk and we'll see you tomorrow for another football social daily Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.